Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, political analyst, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. The Citizen has a piece entitled Western Media Ignore How Ukraine is Using NATO Weapons in the Donbass. And for insight into this, let's turn to our first guest. He's a Sputnik News analyst, Wyatt Reed. Wyatt, as always, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me on, Wilmer. And in this case, I can definitely, I think I can speak on behalf of Garland as well. We're very glad today to have you back. The Citizen reports uh, yesterday Ukraine killed 16 civilians, including two children, with 155-millimeter NATO shells. This is according to the head of the Donetsk People's Republic, Denis Pushilin. The projectiles hit two adjacent neighborhoods, decimating residential and commercial areas, including a market that had previously suffered fatal attacks. And Wyatt, your hotel was hit yesterday as well, correct? My hotel was hit on Saturday night. Ah, I'm sorry, Saturday night. Just tell us what happened, man. Well, I went, first of all, I got here to Donetsk Saturday evening. I looked around for a little bit to find a hotel. The hotel I meant to stay in was booked. Uh, so I had to drive around and uh, look for, for an hour or two to, to find this hotel. I ended up at uh, the Donbass Palace, as it's known, a hotel known for hosting international journalists. And I got in probably about 9 p.m. I walked to a restaurant. I told a colleague of mine my location on WhatsApp and went to find something to eat. On my way back, I was about 100 meters from the entrance to my hotel when an artillery strike smashed into the black directly in front of me. A huge ball of flames and sparks went about three stories high. It shot shrapnel uh, all over the place, shattered the windows of the hotel. The glass in the building above me was shattered from the pressure of the strike. The ground shook glass rained down all around me and I hit the dirt and pulled out my camera and started recording. And you can find the video that I took on my social media, on my telegram, on my Twitter. It was terrifying. I really didn't know how to respond. I wanted to run back into my hotel to get refuge and shelter but I didn't want to run in the direction of the artillery strike because as observers of the Kiev regime tactics will know that frequently when they strike once, they strike again quite soon thereafter. Uh, They do what's called by some military personnel a kind of double tap where they wait for civilians to come out and inspect the damage and for first responders to get on the scene. And then they strike again to take them out as well. So that was my fear. uh, And it really took quite a bit from me 
personally to get over that and to go ahead about 90 seconds later and just sprint directly towards the scene of the strike and, and run right into my hotel. It was as uh, some of the other hotel guests and other journalists who kind of congregated in the lobby after it, uh, it was my baptism by fire, they said. It was a uh, welcome to Donetsk present. And it was, to me, a very small taste uh, and a very personal one of exactly what people in this city and in the region of the Donbass have been going through for eight years. And to me, uh, it was not my first experience, my first interaction necessarily with the Kiev regime, because uh, just a couple of weeks ago, they put me on their official government kill list for the crime of doing journalism in what they call the occupied territories and for witnessing the referendums. I was placed on this kill list. But this was my first physical interaction with the Kiev regime, and I consider myself very lucky and very blessed to have survived it. Um, one of the things that we've been discussing a lot is uh, here in the last few days around the U.S. is the missile strikes reported across Ukraine. Um, your thoughts about the missile strikes and everything that's going on as far as the um, and, and the discussions. Are people talking about 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 the um, the missile strikes and, and what they mean? Absolutely. Well, for people in Donetsk, it's a long time coming. This is something that they have uh, wanted to kind of see on some level for many years to see kind of uh, the attack capabilities of the Zelensky regime forces taken away. That seems to have been kind of, at least here in Donetsk, that is the, the effects of this bombing campaign, of these cruise missile strikes on the military and energy infrastructure. What it means for people here that those on the Ukrainian side do not have access to internet or potentially communication. What it means is that they're not able to carry out these artillery strikes on the civilian areas of Donetsk currently. Uh, so it's been uh, much quieter here over the past couple of days. Uh, it has meant for the people here kind of a reprieve from these terror tactics. I think that's really the only way it can be described when you repeatedly shell civilian areas with no other intention other than to intimidate the people and in some sense punish them for having uh, aligned with Russia. It's hard not to describe that as terrorism or as fascism. And, you know, so for me personally, uh, the fact that they are not currently, it appears, able to carry out these strikes uh, is kind of a blessing. I will uh, say that, uh, you know, these, these cruise missile strikes, obviously were a response to what Russian Federation President Vladimir Putin has described as an act of terrorism by Zelensky and company. Their strike on the Kiev, or sorry, the uh, bridge to Crimea, that strike via, uh, apparently via a suicide bombing, uh, it seems right now that it's, it's quite likely that uh, if it was not a suicide bomber, it was a trucker who was misled and fooled into carrying a load of fertilizer on behalf of the Kiev regime unknowingly set up uh, as a as a bomber. Uh, and that uh, escalation on the part of the Kiev authorities 
led to, in my view, a rather predictable response from Russian forces, which is this uh, decision that, okay, now the gloves are off. And if you're going to strike at uh, civilian infrastructure, you're going to take out uh, our bridge, our civilian bridge, kill numerous civilians while doing so, including a husband and wife, then we are going to have no choice but to respond by striking back at uh, energy infrastructure, at that kind of civilian infrastructure within Ukraine proper. So I, I don't pretend to speak for everybody, but for people around here, it does seem like uh, something of a blessing that at least the attack capabilities have been significantly degraded for the time being. Two questions, and hopefully this first question isn't a silly one. We've been hearing reports here in the West that Russia has been attacking all these civilian locations and killing all these civilians. And when I first heard the story about the attack on your hotel, I said, oh, my God, Wyatt got hit by a Russian missile. And then I I read, reread and said, oh, he got hit by a Ukrainian missile with the Ukrainian army using NATO munitions. First question, how do you know which side of the fight the missile came from? And then the second question is, there's a Washington Post story, Biden scrambles to avert cracks in pro-Ukrainian coalition. What sense are you getting that keeping this coalition together in Ukraine or the countries that are backing the U.S. play here, uh, what kind of reporting or sense are you getting that this whole issue is starting to turn? So in terms of the first question, how do I know that it was Ukrainian forces rather than Russian Federation forces? It, it is on some level to me a, a bit silly. I, I agree. Uh, but it's also something that many of the trolls that have flooded my mentions have proposed that this was somehow a Russian false flag on their own people here in Donetsk, uh, the vast majority of them, by far the, the most hardcore supporters of the Russian Federation forces that I have met so far in my time in Russia. That's why I asked uh, the question. Right. Um, so just on a, on a motivational level, obviously Russia has no motivation to shell its own civilians and turn them against them. But in terms of the scientific, technical explanation, my hotel is facing north. This strike hit uh, about 30 meters outside from the front door and, and, as I noted, shattered windows and sent shrapnel into the revolving door out front. Um, and if I had been 30 seconds a minute faster in walking back to my hotel, I quite likely would have been killed or at the very least severely injured. Uh, the strike hit a apartment building, Caddy Corner, from the entrance to the hotel that is facing west. My hotel faces north. The, that apartment faces west. There's only one group with arms, with munitions, with artillery that possesses the capability to attack from the West. And it is not Russia. It is Ukraine. It is Ukrainian forces. The Russian forces are not uh, shooting uh, from the West. That's not happening. It's just they couldn't even if they wanted to, and of course they don't. So that, you know, to me, it is um, it's very preposterous when I hear it, but I do hear it, especially by people who really seek to control the narrative and seek to discredit people like myself who have 
come under fire from the Ukrainians. We got about a minute and a half left. Any stories that you're hearing from the people that you're talking to in the region that you think um, maybe our listeners here in Washington, D.C. might want to know about? Well, I just heard uh, 20 minutes ago uh, while eating dinner with uh, a couple friends, colleagues, um, and, uh, you know, a woman who has lived here all of her life. Uh, she told me about a friend of hers who, uh, and, and I want to say this, this really kind of tells the story of, of how complicated and how, how tragic a lot of this bloodshed is that obviously could have been avoided if the West had any intention of forcing the Ukrainians to follow up and make good on their peace agreements, the Minsk Accords, uh, the peace plan that Vladimir Zelensky was elected on. Um, but uh, instead, they did not. And now uh, this woman told me that uh, her friend, has, who is very pro-Russian, her son, who she describes as having been brainwashed by the Kiev regime media, uh, ended up fighting on the Ukrainian side. He lost his life a couple weeks ago, and she had this incredibly heartbreaking message uh, of just wishing that he had not uh, gone out and fought on them. She tried so hard to convince him not to do so. On some level, she said the only way that she could understand this and kind of make sense of it is that uh, perhaps this was the only way that he would be able to not continue torturing his own soul. It was, it's a, it's a really heartbreaking stories, but you, this is, this conflict is full of them. And really the sooner that it ends, the better. And I think that's part of the reason so many people here are supportive of this intensification. They think that this is taking the gloves off is the only way to bring an end to this once and for all. Wyatt Reed. Hey, thank you so much for your time today. Really, really appreciate it. Stay safe. And oh, man, we look forward to having you back. Thank you so much. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. There's a piece in Antiwar.com entitled Relentless, JFK on Cuba, Putin on Ukraine. And it opens as follows, quote, First time since the Cuban Missile Crisis, we have a direct threat of the use of a nuclear weapon if, in fact, things continue down the path they're going. I'm trying to figure out what is Putin's off-ramp, end quote. Biden did did well to cite the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962 and compare it to the 2022 crisis in Ukraine. The analogy is apt. Whether the president understands the important implications is not so clear. Suffice it to say that in each case, one major power saw an existential threat and was willing to risk nuclear war to thwart it. 
For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He works with Tell the Word, a publishing arm of the Ecumenical Church of the Savior in inner city Washington. His 27-year career as a CIA analyst includes serving as the chief of the Soviet Foreign Policy Branch and preparer and brief for the president's daily brief. He's co-founder of Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity, and he's the author of this piece. Ray McGovern, as always, Ray, welcome back. Thank you. What do you see as being the parallels and the differences between the Cuban Missile Crisis and today? And also, the president said that the 62 crisis was the last time nuclear threats were made, but I don't think history proves that to be accurate, Ray McGovern. Well, thanks for uh, the the lead-in here. Uh, You quote the key sentence, uh, suffice it to say, in in my words here, that in each case, that is in Cuba 62, and 60 years later, if you can believe it, uh, Ukraine 2022, um, one major power saw an existential threat, a strategic threat that one major power would have to thwart or contend with or even start a war over. So one major power thought that, and in in, uh, Cuba, of course, that major power was the United States of America, who was tricked into thinking Khrushchev, the uh, Soviet Porter leader, would never do this, and then went ahead and did. Now, in Ukraine, uh, the person, the the, the, uh, power that uh, would risk nuclear war to thwart this threat would be uh, Russia. Okay. Now, uh, what is the challenge to Russia that would make it feel so so threatened uh, that it would make it feel that there's an existential threat to Russia? Well, suffice it to say, and listeners to this program will know the answer to that, and that is the threatens the threats that have come to Russia ever since the Soviet Union imploded. And no one knows those threats better than a fellow named Vladimir Putin. So we have two people threatened, Kennedy in 62. We have Putin in 2022. Uh, Who are the other parties here? Well, with Kennedy, it was Khrushchev. Now, did the Soviet Union, did Khrushchev feel an existential threat? If he withdrew those missiles, no way. (laughs) It would be embarrassing. But he was the one that was making the existential threat. And because Kennedy and Khrushchev talked it over, because Kennedy had some really good advice and some good contacts and could thwart what the Joint Chiefs of Staff wanted to do, it was a peaceful outcome. Okay. Now, how about Ukraine? Who is the one threatened? Well, I I have built a case over the last year, especially, uh, just showing one evidence after another that Putin and Russia fear the emplacement of short-range or medium-range ballistic missiles on their periphery in Europe, notably in Romania, where emplacements are already there, in Poland, where they're almost complete, and in Ukraine. Putin has made this very, very clear, and as listeners to this program will remember, 
Biden promised not to do that in Ukraine in a call that Putin insisted on on the 30th December last year. He undertook, and, and the readout, the Russian readout says, uh, Mr. Biden said that Washington has no intention of emplacing offensive strike missiles in Ukraine, period, end quote. The U.S. reneged on that promise. Biden was not allowed to do that by those people around him. And six weeks later, Putin painfully complained that the U.S. had forgotten about that promise. That was two weeks before the invasion. So what I'm saying here is that Putin feels an existential threat to Russia. The first duty of a Soviet president, a Russian president, or an American president, I think, is to make sure that when your nation, when your country uh, faces an existential threat, and most important, when you have the power, well, you have the power to thwart that threat, to meet it and defeat it, then the other person has to has to uh, back down. Now, the other person, of course, is Joe Biden here, or what suffices to say, the U.S. leadership such as it is. Are they going to back down? Well, the question is, should they back down? And the answer there is, is it an existential threat to the United States to back down? No way is it an existential threat. So long story short, I'm really saying that Joe Biden has to act as sensibly as Khrushchev acted way back. sixty. It's 60 years almost to the date that we found those Soviet. It was on the 14th of October. 1962, that we found those missiles in Cuba. Next three weeks uh, worked themselves out in a way that we all could have this discussion today. I'm not sure that Biden is able to realize that he's got to back off here. He's got to back off and he's got to do it pretty soon. Uh, probably he can't do that in the next month because of the midterm elections, but Putin is not going to allow the emplacement of the equivalent uh, medium-range ballistic missiles on the periphery of Russia. And that's just one of uh, Putin's objectives. The others are denazification and demilitarization. And Russia, lastly, is not losing on the ground. There is no way that the Soviet military, I'm sorry, the Russian military could lose on the ground absent the use of nuclear weapons, and that and only that is where they come into play. Ray, there's some important things, I think, going on now. There are a number of voices that are starting to call for a negotiated settlement. Let me read one. We, We must demand the immediate negotiation of a peaceful end to the war in Ukraine, or we will end up in World War III, and there will be nothing left of our planet, all because stupid people didn't have a clue. They don't understand the power of nuclear. Well, it's easy to figure out who that is. That's Donald Trump. Here's what I have to say, though. I think that's important for this reason. Trump supporters, if nothing else, are extremely loyal to Donald Trump. And if Donald Trump says that, there are a lot of people who support Donald Trump who may not otherwise go in that direction, who may say, well, Trump's going in that direction. I'm going in that direction. Your thoughts on the voices. Now, we've heard Admiral Mullen. I think these are positive developments. Your thought, Ray? Well, Admiral Mullen has always had his head screwed on right. Uh, 
Uh, so uh, people ought to look up what he said. As for Trump supporters, uh, as a professional intelligence analyst, of course, this is irrelevant. Uh, I, you know, we're apolitical, right? We don't support Trump. We don't support Biden. Okay, so let's make that clear from the outset. Now, sotto voce, I will whisper in your ears that I think Donald Trump was the very worst president we ever had in this country. Okay, uh, I say that just because that has to be, happens to be the reality. Now, I also say that because, you know, a broken clock can be right, what is it? Twice two a day. Three times, two, I guess twice, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> twice a day, right? Okay. And, a, and, well, a, right. and Ray, a blind squirrel can find a nut in the forest sometimes. <laughs> well, he's right on this, for God's sake. And he's chosen this very artful way of, uh, of interposing himself so he gets some publicity. He was also right in complaining that the deep state was out to derail him from becoming president, number one. And then once he was president, they raised the Russian specter with no evidence. OK, let me say that again. Russiagate had no evidence behind it. The reason most people don't realize that is because the New York Times refuses, refuses to print the retraction uh, that there was Soviet hacking. That retraction came in sworn testimony on December 5th, 2017, for God's sake. And, the, and uh, between Adam Schiff in the House and the New York Times, in the New York Times, that has been suppressed. Read it. The testimony is available. So Russiagate, Trump was right. They did everything to eviscerate him, and especially because they didn't want a decent relationship with Russia. Why? Because you can't sell enough arms if there's a decent relationship with Russia, pure and simple. What I call the Mickey Mac, military, industrial, congressional, intelligence, media, academia, think tank, complex, uh, a, a growth out of what Ike warned about, President Eisenhower back in 1961. Uh, so these people are pretty much in control. They're the ones that told Biden, Joe, did you really promise Putin that you wouldn't put medium-range ballistic missiles in Ukraine? Come <laughs> on, Joe. This is a big card. Now, you can't say that. So he reneged. Now, Putin complained bitterly about that just two weeks before the invasion. Bottom line here, do we, do we accuse President Kennedy of being of launching acts of war, blockade, threatening to invade Cuba? Uh, do we say that that was unprovoked? No way. Now, do we say that what Putin did in Ukraine, however distasteful, was unprovoked? No way if you know the whole story. In terms of knowing the whole story, and I'm glad that we have you on to discuss this, there's a lot of discussion about President Putin threatening to use nuclear weapons. How much of that, if any, is Putin actually threatening to use weapons versus his warning the United States, well, first of all, his responding to Tony Blinken back in August during an interview saying, if we need to, we will use them. 
And his warning the United States in response to that statement, I've got them too. You will not bully me. And how much of this is conflation and projection by the United States? Well, I wouldn't say conflation and projection because I don't really know what that means, but it's BS, okay? Uh, let me let me be clear. Um, in February, when Putin invaded Ukraine, uh, he did something very unusual that Russian leaders, Soviet leaders have not done. He threatened. He said, look, don't forget that we have nuclear weapons. And uh, actually, I'm going to advance the alert status of our nuclear defense potential. Whoa, that was something unusual. Now, did they do that? <laughs> no, it was rhetoric. OK, he just wanted to remember us, remind us. Now, Liz Truss in, in Britain and others of us said, you know, I, I'm happy. I'm able to do the, the I press the button and annihilate the rest of the world if Putin keeps doing what he's doing. So what Putin did was react to that. And it's very clear if you look at the reaction. And what he did was to state the longstanding Russian position on the use of nuclear weapons. Number one, we won't use them unless we're attacked with nuclear weapons. And number two, we won't use them unless there is an existential threat to Russia. That's the point here, okay? He's just reminding, look, we're gonna win in Ukraine. Mark my words. That is inevitable, okay? I'm, I'm, that's McGovern, okay? We're going to win in Ukraine, and the only way that you would, might resort to, you guys might resort to nuclear weapons. I don't have to. It makes no military sense. And all this other stuff is just, as you said, Wilmer, conflation, uh, a way to blacken uh, Putin by telling all Americans he has threatened nuclear war. He hasn't. He has just repeated Russia's longstanding position. It's written down, for God's sake, on nuclear war. Ray McGovern, as always, sir, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate this analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Most welcome. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. TASS reports Russian Foreign Ministry says U.S. calls for peace talks on Ukraine are hypocritical. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's a Moscow-based international relations and security analyst, Mark Schloboda. As always, Mark, welcome back. Dr. Leon Garland, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on The Critical Hour. Before we get to this discussion of peace talks, uh, a giant explosion ripped across the Crimean Bridge, a strategic link between mainland Russia and Crimea this past Saturday. And seemingly as a result to that, there has been an escalation on missile attacks from Russia into Ukraine. Mark, first of all, how significant of an explosion was that on the Crimean Bridge? Is it all as reported by Western media, and are we now seeing an escalation, or 
are the missiles that we're seeing now flying hither and yon, were they already in the planning? Um, so, um, yeah, I, I love the way that this is uh, being reported in the Western media. It, it was an explosion. It just it just happened. But I, I don't know. It, you know, what, what could possibly be the cause of this? Well, the uh, Kiev regime officials uh, have uh, for, well, uh, months now said that as soon as they have the capability, they will attack the Kerch Bridge uh, from from uh, uh, Kerch, Russia to uh, Crimea, Russia, um, because uh, they see it as a symbol of the unification of Crimea and Russia. And it certainly is a useful civilian and logistical uh, bridge, um, although not vital because Russia controls territory uh, now uh, that claims as its own between, you know, from the Donbass down through uh, Kherson and into Crimea as well. And it actually did perfectly fine just with ferries up until 2020 when when the bridge uh, was opened as well. Uh, but uh, it is seen as symbolic. So they long announced multiple officials multiple times. As soon as we get the opportunity, we'll attack it. Um, well, that happened this weekend in what was obviously a long planned and somewhat clever, uh, if terrorist, operation. Um, there, uh, a driver, a local driver of a, uh, uh, trucking, uh, persuasion, uh, was hired to take a cargo, which he picked up, um, and, um, uh, was to drive it across the bridge into the Crimea. Um, the explosives were in the, uh, truck. Um, and it is uh, now apparent that not only were these high-powered explosives uh, uh, very uh, of a particular type to avoid easy scanning, but they also had thin uh, metal um, layers within them uh, of a type that is specifically designed to intensify the explosive effect. Um, what what is even better is that uh, the uh, arrival of this truck was seemingly perfectly timed um, to coincide with a uh, the rail uh, tracks mm. are directly adjacent to the civilian traffic road to coincide with um, fuel um, uh, storage uh, uh, containers uh, passing along. Uh, the uh, track at the exact same time. Uh, it would have been a much less significant explosion of much less significant damage otherwise. Uh, the driver, evidently, he is Russian, a family of three. He had no idea uh, what he was carrying in this truck. Uh, he's a father of three, by the way. Um, so his, his wife and his three children are, are now uh, fatherless. Because the Kiev regime's SBU uh, decided he would make a useful dupe and unwilling suicide bomber. Um, so the damage done to the road uh, was not insignificant. Um, one half 
of the uh, civilian road had the asphalt layer uh, completely um, uh, slid off, um, although uh, it appears that there was uh, no significant structural damage done. Uh, it will still take a number of weeks to repair it. There was minor damage also done to the railroad uh, side, but the railroad was up and running by uh, later that same day. Uh, with, with within 14 hours, actually, um, and uh, road traffic on the one half uh, that is still functioning, uh, obviously at a, at a reduced capacity, is still going. So the attempt to destroy, uh, we know clearly who did this because the Ukrainian papers reported that the government told them that they did it. It was reported in the mainstream uh, um, uh, Ukrainian newspaper, Ukrainska Pravda, that regime uh, uh, officials reached out to them and said that, yes, it was the Ukrainian intelligence services doing what they promised to do. What's more, the Ukrainian postal service, the regime's postal service, was already and within an hour of the explosion had launched commemorative stamps <laughs> of the explosion of the bridge. Um, and not only did they have the stamps, but they had big mock-up of the stamps in a within an hour in a central park in Kiev for people to come and take pictures, selfies or pictures of themselves standing in front of the Korean bridge with big explosives on this. Uh, but once it was revealed that the bridge was not completely destroyed, as the plan obviously was, then um, uh, uh, suddenly it became, oh, uh, uh, we, we retract all that. Kind of awkward. Uh, we didn't do it. It just happened. Right. The Russians probably blew it up themselves, probably blew up their own bridge like they blew up their own <laughs> pipelines, like they tried to blow themselves up inside the nuclear power plant they control, like they've been bombing uh, themselves and other East Ukrainians uh, in, in Donetsk for the last eight years. I mean, that's the constant, uh, you know, absurd refrain uh, coming out of out of this regime's, you know, uh, just absurd uh, disinformation. The big question I have is about the timing. See, the timing for this truck to cross that bridge at exactly that time. Obviously, there wasn't anyone else on the bridge timing when to blow up the explosives on this truck, which says that it was probably done by satellite to me. That is probably mm -hmm. the way the timing was worked out, which would indicate that there was foreign intelligence, and we all know who I'm talking about, uh, involved in the carrying out of this attack. Now, that last is speculation on my part, but I think it's well-grounded speculation, and it is what the newspapers, what the analysts are talking about in Russia right now. Mark, uh, the subsequent missile strikes, you know, there was there's been speculation. Was was this actual retaliation? Was this planned um, as part of the new, you know, uh, uh, you know, offensive. Move, offensive, et cetera? Your thoughts on the missile strikes? Yeah, no, I, I, I believe that this like like when the U.S. is engaging in conflict and like 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 they have uh, there is an escalation path, like certain things are. There are plans that exist that if this and this happens or something of this magnitude happens, then this is a plan that we can go to and draw. But the Russian president has been so reticent uh, at this 
doing this type of infrastructure damage, the type of infrastructure damage that the U.S. does as soon as they invade a country like Iraq or Libya, um, w- when they target the electricity uh, and um, uh, the uh, uh, transportation uh, immediately. Um, this, um, I don't, I don't think that 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 Putin actually wanted this without a significant event like this crossing a red line that required that level of escalation. So, uh, no, I, I, I don't believe that. I believe that there, there were escalatory plans to do this at a certain point if something was done. This was the thing that was done, and this plan was pulled out of, out of the drawer. Um, so, um, the first of all, um, it was composed of a large number of cruise missile strikes, um, uh, uh, the uh, drone work, uh, and also a limited amount of, of a small amount of aviation uh, that was involved in it. Um, the, the, the primary target, the the the, uh, the most focused target, was buildings of the uh, offices of the Ukrainian intelligence services, the SBU, uh, which which carried out the attack. Um, the, um, and, and the Russian government has been quite frank about that. Um, and actually Ukrainian presidential advisors earlier tweeted that, that the SBU did it too, although they later said, well, I, I take that back. It was just speculation. Okay. Whatever guys. Um, so, um, the second target, um, was, um, has been, um, uh, electricity, um, transformer substations uh, and thermal plants uh, that provide electricity. Um, and uh, the goal here is to logistically shut down the Kiev regime because the trains in Ukraine run on electricity. And this will inhibit their ability um, to um, uh, move troops and gear around the country because trains are the primary move uh, mode at which they get stuff around if, if it's anywhere outside of a local area, because those distances roads uh, simply aren't, aren't, aren't capable of, of, of carrying that amount, that level of military equipment. So it's all done by trains. Uh, and to that effect, uh, several uh, tr- important train junctions uh, were hit as well. Uh, but there is also uh, definitely uh, an effect on the Kiev regime's command and control if there's no electricity for them to operate, to plan things, to have access to the internet, to be able to communicate easily with their forces in the field. Um, and this doubles down on interruptions that Russia has obviously um, uh, been jamming uh, the Starlink communication systems uh, over the last uh, two weeks uh, along the battlefield. This is the um, uh, connections that Elon Musk the uh, American oligarch uh, provided uh, Kiev, he provided them with thousands, uh, tens of thousands of communication units uh, that have helped them communicate uh, on the battlefield via via these uh, satellites, these Starlink satellites that he put up in the orbit. Well, Russia has also demonstrated that they have the ability to jam those and stop that communication. Um, and, and that uh, doubles down now on the um, uh, strikes against electricity. And this, we're in the second day of uh, strikes 
on Ukrainian infrastructure, quid, a clear quid pro quo. You've attacked our infrastructure enough. You've made it a legitimate target. Now we're responding in kind in a much bigger way. And that is what they've been doing. And I, I think probably the intensity of it will somewhat die down. There will be pauses for assessment of, of what damage has been done, what needs to be hit again, uh, that sort. Uh, but I, I presume that some level of this will continue, uh, perhaps tactically, uh, on, a, on a, a tactical level in specific areas, but it will now become a regular feature of this conflict. Mark Sloboda, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thanks for having me. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Times of Israel reports Iran rushing ahead with uranium enrichment. UN Nuclear Watchdog says in their report, the IAEA update finds installation of advanced centrifuges now complete at Natanz underground plant. Tehran says it plans to add even more devices that were banned in the 2015 deal. As As soon as we read this story, we both thought of our next guest. He's a former U.S. Marine Corps intelligence officer, author of Disarmament in Times of Perestroika, Arms Control in the End of the Soviet Union. He served in the Soviet Union as an inspector implementing the INF Treaty, served in General Schwarzkopf's staff during the Gulf War, and from 91 to 98 was a chief weapons inspector with the U.N. in Iraq. He is Scott Ritter. As always, Scott, welcome back. Well, thanks for having me. So the report is that Iran has increased the number of advanced uranium enrichment centrifuges it fields and intends to add more of the devices, quickly growing its enrichment capabilities. This is according to a so-called confidential IAEA report seen by Reuters yesterday. The newly installed devices located at the underground Natanz enrichment plant are banned under Iran's 2015 nuclear deal with world powers. First of all, Scott, what does all of this mean? And what really stood out to me was banned under the 2015 nuclear deal with world powers. The United States has reneged on the deal. So I would think we don't have a deal. So Iran can do what Iran chooses to do. Scott Ritter. Well, let's let's be let's be careful. The United States withdrew from the deal, which means that the United States is no longer party to the deal. Iran regardless of the status of the United States, has an obligation to um, live up to its agreement unless a party to the agreement is in noncompliance. So Iran's beef isn't with the United States in this regard because the United States isn't a member of the, of, of the deal. Iran could care less. I mean, they're against what the U.S. is doing sanctions-wise, but the U.S. doesn't have a vote. Iran's problem is with the European Union, with uh, France, with Germany. Um, who have allowed the threat of U.S. secondary sanctions to uh, cause them to renege on their obligations 
to have free trade with Iran. And that's where Iran has, has come in and said, you guys aren't living up to your end of the bargain. Again, it, it's not that the U.S. isn't living up. To, the U.S. isn't a party to the agreement anymore. The U.S. simply doesn't matter. Uh, the U.S. is trying to get back in, and there's some negotiations taking place regarding that. But from the Iranian perspective, their problem is with the European Union. They've said all along that the European Union must live up to its obligations, and the European Union has not been living up to its obligations. And so in accordance with the, 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 um, the, the JCPOA, with the Iran nuclear agreement, Iran is citing two paragraphs which <laughs> the United States had put in to target Iran. Mm-hmm. Uh, the United States had put these, these, these paragraphs in so that if Iran was in noncompliance, the United States and other nations like the European Union could then stop their obligations until which time Iran came into compliance. Well, Iran has flipped the script and said, since you're not in compliance, we can back away from our commitments, and therefore we will stop doing that which we're required to do until you come into compliance, you being Europe. So Iran has been very clear that they will stop it, uh, adhering to what's called the additional protocol of inspections. That's the uh, more stringent inspections that go beyond that which is required under the uh, IEAA's safeguards agreements uh, agreement with Iran, um, and Iran will not comply with the restrictions on you know developing centrifuges, um, deploying centrifuges, and using centrifuges. They won't comply with uh, limits on the amount of uh, uh, uranium that it can enrich and, and stockpile. All of this because Iran said the, 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 the deal's off. You're not complying with the deal. So we don't have to do this. And Iran is 100% legally permitted to do what it's doing. Now, politically, Iran's creating a a heck of a problem because the whole purpose of the JCPOA was to create this um, so-called one-year window uh, of, uh, of, of, of the breakout scenario where, you know, the restrictions that were put on Iran were such that if Iran decided not to cooperate, to break its uh, agreement, it would take them at least a year to accumulate enough fissile material to make a single nuclear device. Well, Iran's just blown right through that. Right now, if Iran wanted to produce enough fissile material to produce a single nuclear device, it could do so in a matter of weeks, um, which, of course, puts pressure on the United States because Israel now is, is in a panic. Um, the United States is desperate. Europe doesn't know what to do. But Iran is resolute. They're basically telling everybody, pound, stand. Now, the important thing is Iran is doing this in accordance with the rule of law. The reason why we're reading about it isn't that Iran's doing this in secrecy. Iran is obligated to declare this to the International Atomic Energy Agency, which it has done. The IAEA then sends inspectors to Iran to confirm what Iran is talking about, count the centrifuges, et cetera, et cetera, and then they issue this report. The report is supposed to be confidential, as all safeguards reports are. But as you know, typical in Vienna, uh, the report has been released to the press, who then exaggerates and misrepresents what the report is actually saying. Iran is not in violation of its obligations. Iran's obligations have been suspended 
because of the ongoing violations of the European Union, France, Germany, the United Kingdom, who have failed to live up to their obligations to engage in meaningful uh, or to permit uh, economic uh, intercourse between Iran and Europe out of fear of American secondary sanctions. These sanctions were imposed by the United States after it decided it wanted out of the Iran nuclear agreement. Now the United States is trying to get back in. One of the uh, things that are being talked about is the ending of these sanctions, that they end, then, of course, Europe would once again allow the economic interaction that is permissible. And Iran has said everything they're doing is reversible. But it's actually sort of gotten beyond the point of reversible. The fact that Iran is going forward this way tells me that Iran is not going back to the JCPOA. Iran is not looking backward. They're looking forward, and they just don't care about the United States, about Germany, France, the EU. Iran is, has pivoted to the east. Their relations are, their future is with China, Russia, uh, the, 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 the trans-Eurasian community, and uh, that's what they're focused on. I think even though it hasn't officially, the stake hasn't officially been driven through the vampire known as the JCPOA, this pretty much you know, is, 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 is proof that that's the direction this is heading. Uh, Consortium News has an article, OPEC's body blow to Biden. The OPEC plus decision could change the security picture in West Asia more than anything since the 1979 Iranian revolution. The OPEC plus one decision, Scott, what's that mean? The OPEC plus one decision um, is a decision made by the Gulf Arab states, primarily Saudi Arabia um, and Russia, who is the plus uh, one, to reduce uh, the amount of oil being produced. Uh, the, the total reduction is 2 million barrels a day. What's important here is that back in July, uh, President Joe Biden crawled on his knees to Saudi Arabia to plead with the Saudi leadership, you know, the leadership that he called a pariah. We should uh, ostracize them. I will never speak to these people, ever speak to these people because of their role in the murder and dismemberment of uh, Jamal Khashoggi, the Saudi journalist. Um, and yet we crawled, he shook hands, he sat down, and he begged. He begged Saudi Arabia to up their oil production by a million barrels a day. Why? Because Joe Biden had a political problem. Gas prices were going crazy here in the United States, and he knew that the it, you know, James Carville's old statement, it's the economy stupid, applied in full effect. And if he didn't do something to get gas prices down, the Democrats were going to get wiped out at midterm elections, which means his last two years would be worse than any lame duck presidency in the history of the United States. Nothing could get done. So he needed this. He begged. He pleaded. And at that time, uh, he was told by the uh, Saudi leadership, eh, we, we may be able to raise uh, production by a million. Biden was asking for a lot more. Um, but we have to wait until August when we have this meeting with the OPEC plus one. Plus one is Russia. And what the Saudis told Biden then is that the future of American energy security is dependent upon the Russians. And we now have the answer. Saudi Arabia and Russia have come together and said, not only are they not going to increase uh, oil production, they're going to decrease this. This is devastating for Joe Biden. The price of gas, oil now is going to get, it's up around, I think it's approaching 100 bucks. It could even go higher. Um, that we're going to fill the price here at the pump. There's nothing Biden can do 
to uh, to change this. He can release more oil from the U.S. strategic petroleum reserves. He's already depleted it, uh, but he can release what's left. He's begged the Japanese to dump their oil on the market, uh, but these are all temporary fixes. The bottom line is um, the Saudis and the Russians have jammed uh, Joe Biden. And we hear today the United States, uh, I think it was um, uh, Jake Sullivan or, or, or maybe um, uh, Kirby talking about the need to um, you know, relook at the U.S.-Saudi strategic relationship. This is huge. The strategic relationship has been you know, carved in stone since 1945 when Franklin Delano Roosevelt met with King Saud. Saud, and, and they agreed uh, that the Saudis would become a stable provider of, uh, you know, oil in exchange for American protection. Um, now the, the Biden administration, humiliated by the Saudis, is talking about reevaluating that. But I think the Saudis are one step ahead of them. It sounds to me like they've reevaluated the relationship, and they've decided that it's more important to pivot to Russia and China, that the future is to the east, not the west. And we have just about a minute left. That takes me to the next point. Senate Foreign Relations Committee Chair Bob Menendez yesterday calls for freezing all U.S. cooperation with the Saudis. And uh, he specifically called for cutting off arms sales. I don't know how Raytheon and Lockheed Martin allow that one to happen. Scott Ritter, we got a minute. Well, I mean, the bottom line is that Raytheon and Lockheed Martin don't don't have a say. The Saudis are, have made a decision. I think they've uh, they, they they understand the ramifications of what they're doing. Menendez is desperate. Biden is desperate. Um, you know this 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 is not you know. It, it was, well, wait a minute. Not that not that not that Raytheon and Lockheed can have any control over the Saudi side, but I would think they've got an incredible amount of lobbying pressure on the U.S. side. They do to an extent, but this is one of those occasions where the or it just simply doesn't matter. Okay, it's what the Saudis want. The important thing here for Biden is what's this going to do to Israel? Because Biden had been working to get the Israelis and the Saudis closer together. And if the United States is reevaluating its relationship with Saudi Arabia, that puts Israel in the bind, who has invested heavily in opening relations with the Gulf Arab states. So, yeah, I think the Biden administration has gotten ahead of their skis on this one. Scott Ritter, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate that analysis. Looking forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Israel announces historic maritime border agreement with Lebanon. Israel announced this morning that it had reached a historic agreement with Lebanon over the maritime border between the two countries in the gas-rich Mediterranean. What does this really mean? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's an award-winning journalist and analyst based in Beirut, Lebanon. Laith Marouf, as always, Laith, welcome back. Thank you for having me. So Prime Minister Yair Lapid said the deal would strengthen Israel's security, inject billions into Israel's economy, 
and ensure the stability of their northern border. Hezbollah agreed to the terms of the deal and considers the negotiations over, according to Reuters. Uh, what's actually going on here, and is the deal being hailed by both sides uh, to the degree that the Times of Israel is reporting, Laith Marouf? Well, uh, just now as we are recording this, uh, Sayyid Hassan Nasrallah, the Secretary General of Hezbollah, is uh, giving a speech, so I'm not sure yet what he, his final word on this is. But uh, what we know from before the agreement came to be is that uh, Hezbollah had said the government of Lebanon is responsible for the negotiations and that the military force of Hezbollah is there to guarantee uh, the rights of the Lebanese state as it defines them. And so what we saw is the Lebanese state has defined what is the borderline between uh, Lebanon and occupied Palestine. Uh, they And the Israelis agreed to that line. Uh, the Lebanese demanded that uh, immediately uh, international gas companies uh, like Total of uh, France would arrive and uh, sign the contracts and begin the um, prospecting in the sea uh, and the extraction. So we saw today also uh, the head of Total company arrive in, in Beirut and uh, begin the process. Uh, so it's clear that uh, Lebanon got everything that it wants as a state, and therefore Hezbollah is going to uh, abide by that those lines. Um, you know, the Israeli media is freaking out um, much of it, especially uh, the extreme right that is uh, supportive of Netanyahu. Uh, they're talking about Hezbollah bringing Israel to its knees uh, Netanyahu even made a statement just uh, an hour ago condemning this deal, saying that Labid sold out uh, Israeli rights. Um, you know, this is all, of course, um, there is an election coming up in uh, the Zionist colony uh, in two weeks at the beginning of November. How is Lebanon viewed in, excuse me, uh, Hezbollah viewed in Lebanon? Are they seen, you know, overall? What is their popularity like? Do you think this particular incident in which they seem to have held fast with their, um, I'm not going to use the word threats, but their um, argument that they were um, protecting uh, Lebanon's economic interests, how do you think this will have an effect on Hezbollah and how the people of Lebanon see Hezbollah, the people in the region? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, this is now celebrated across the country. Everybody knows that uh, Hezbollah's steadfast position and threats to, uh, you know, attack all the Israeli oil fields and gas fields if Lebanon is not allowed the same rights to extract its resources and benefit from it and, and you know, give good life to its citizens. Uh, now people uh, have hope. You know, we, we've seen four years of the last uh, presidency of Lebanon, which is coming also to an end. And, and by the end of the month, they have to elect a new president and a new prime minister in Lebanon. Uh, 
finally something good came out of the presidency of President Aoun after four years of it being wasted through uh, delays, uh, corona, the explosion, the crash of the economy and what have you. Um, and the uh, funny uh, part is that the American uh, goons in the streets here, the media personalities that the U.S. and the Saudis uh, fund here are all out, uh, you know, condemning this deal, claiming that Hezbollah gave up on uh, the rights of Lebanon um, and, uh, you know, uh, are, are pushing a further line than what Hezbollah or the Lebanese government uh, took. So suddenly those who condemned Hezbollah's use of uh, threats and use of military force uh, are claiming that Hezbollah is the sellout. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're living in an upside uh, down world uh, and, and it's the same uh, everywhere here in Lebanon. It's not different than, I guess, uh, what we see uh, uh, the, the contradictions of how people speak about things in, in Ukraine or other places. So before we get to the next story, how quickly is it expected that this uh, gas will start to be extracted and that Lebanon can start seeing revenue generated from the sale of this gas on the open market? Well, it will be uh, as fast as Total as a company can um, determine the gas fields. Uh, we know there is some hints to where there is a few gas fields like the Qana uh, gas field uh, and others. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's been 10 years that some of these companies other than Total already did some surveys of the uh, area and didn't deliver on extraction because of threats from the United States. But uh, President Biden just called uh, President uh, Owen a few hours ago, uh, congratulated them on the signing of uh, this agreement, and reassured uh, Lebanon that the United States guarantees uh, that the you know ex gas extraction companies the, like Total will have the full blessing to do the work and will not be uh, bothered or, or stopped or threatened with sanctions because of uh, work in Lebanon. Led by uh, Senator Bob Menendez, there are a number of, um, of uh, Democratic uh, uh, senators now and a lot of Democratic politicians in Congress who are calling for, uh, you know, some kind of revenge against Saudi Arabia for their decisions. What are your thoughts on the relationship um, between Saudi Arabia and the United States currently? I mean, this is a, a developing story that's uh, moving very fast. I mean, we, we remember last week, uh, OPEC uh, uh, raised, uh, you know, cut down the um, production by 2 million barrels, OPEC plus. And uh, since that moment, we see the West is, is uh, specifically the United States really pissed off at the Saudis. Uh, uh, incidentally, also just uh, a few hours ago, the president of the United Arab Emirates was in landed in Moscow and met with President Putin. Uh, they had a press conference where he congratulated Putin on his birthday, and uh, it's clear that uh, the OPEC plus members, like uh, the Saudis and the Emiratis, are trying to play a role in um, finding an end to the conflict in Ukraine uh, and uh, or at least of it to make sure that the oil markets globally are not affected by this war. Uh, so I, I you know there is 
now talk of uh, Saudis and Emiratis being deprived uh, from their um, weapons that the United States sells them, uh, possibility of even the Americans withdrawing their troops. But those those will be uh, self-harming moves by the Americans because, remember, uh, the Saudis and the Emiratis are probably the largest weapons uh, purchasers from the United States. Um, you know, if, if you cut that out of the budget of, uh, uh, you know, weapons manufacturers, there'll be a huge collapse, crash in the in the market there of, of weapons. But also, what would the Americans do if they don't have the Saudis and the Emiratis with their bases, the Americans there? They will not be able to control the Gulf and they will have a harder time um, you know, influencing uh, Iran and or projecting their power there. There is, uh, you know, now what we will see in the next few days developing. Uh, I think if uh, clear heads don't, uh, you know, rise in the United States, they'll be shooting themselves in the foot once more, as we see here in Ukraine. Just following up on this, the Democrats accuse, and this is led by Bob Menendez, so, you know, folks, take it for whatever it's worth because he's not worth much. The Democrats accuse Mohammed bin Salman of effectively flouting the Saudi side of a decades-long bargain that has consisted of the U.S. military and defense industry providing security for Saudi Arabia and Saudi Arabia in turn providing world markets with a reliable flow of oil. A couple of things. One is this reference to the military and defense industry. That to me says that there are billions of dollars at stake here. And I still don't believe, no matter how much jingoistic and and, and chest-bumping rhetoric Menendez uses, that uh, Lockheed Martin is going to sit idly by and, and let the United States put a pause on their paycheck. And the second thing is, I'm just wondering why Bob Menendez is in such uproar now when if you wanted to use some leverage and you wanted to show some sense of morality, you would have used this leverage to stop the Saudis' attack on Yemen. Leith. Yeah, I mean, clearly... Uh this rhetoric uh, is not going to manifest in reality. What we see, what will more more probably happen, is that the United States will continue its uh, its um, you know relationship with the Saudis as is. They will continue to maintain their bases there because they need to project their power against Iran, and they will continue to sell their weapons because they have nobody else that is willing to buy so much weapons. Uh, at such prices. So that's one thing. The other option is a coup, uh, is a, is an assassination by the CIA and a change of power in the Saudi or Emirati royal family. And that's mm. a, those are the only two options. The third option of, of actually pulling out and starting, a, 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 you know, calling Saudi names and not doing business with them, that is not going to happen. The leader of the UAE recently, Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed al Nayyan, was in Moscow meeting with President Putin. I think that shows that it's not just the Saudis that are leaning in the direction of, you know, supporting the the OPEC OPEC plus one countries. Uh, your thoughts? Yeah, definitely. And and this meeting is, uh, you know, beyond uh, trying to figure out. 
uh, a common policy on oil uh, exporting in the world and the pricing. They are suddenly right now the Saudis and Emiratis are in a position to uh, negotiate some uh, peace treaty. You see, they can see also how Turkey is uh, is trying to negotiate between uh, Ukraine and Russia. There will be a meeting in Astana uh, in the next few days with the presidents of uh, Turkey and and Russia. Uh, so you know anybody that has any influence right now our business to do with Russia that hasn't called Russia names, uh, they have a chance to play a positive role. Uh, you know, remember also if the, if the, uh, everybody, if not, not only the Israelis are watching the Iranian drones, uh, you know, hitting Ukraine successfully and, uh, the amount of damage that they're doing and they're, you know, this probably speeded up the deal, uh, over the Lebanese, uh, gas fields, uh, that we just spoke earlier about because the Israelis must have been really scared that uh, Hezbollah has those same drones. But I'm sure that Saudis and the Emiratis are also watched that and saw the relationship between Russia and Iran solidifying militarily to the point of Russia buying these drones and using them in Ukraine. And they were probably right now attempting to get favor as much as possible for the day when the U.S. is not there that at least uh, you know they, they would have an avenue to negotiate with Iran through Russia. And we have just about a minute to two minutes left. Uh, who, there's a Middle East eye has a piece. Who are the terrorists? How a new Palestinian generation is fighting occupation. That plus uh, you were reporting earlier that another Israeli soldier, I think the fourth one this week, has been shot. Yes, yes. I mean, uh, of course, the new generation right now in Palestine are breaking a mold. Uh, we have an armed uprising right now in the West Bank. On a daily basis, uh, there's attacks on Israeli checkpoints. Uh, and uh, anytime in, incursions, multiple incursions by Israeli military forces into Palestinian cities that are confronted militarily and, and repelled. Uh, as, as you mentioned, this Today, there was another Israeli soldier that was shot at a checkpoint, um, you know, point blank, uh, you know, three day, four days ago at the Shuafat uh, checkpoint in East Jerusalem. Uh, that was one of the, you know, bravest uh, attacks that I've ever seen. A guy came out, a Palestinian uh, youth came out of a car and shot the Israeli soldiers point blank to, on their heads uh, in the in checkpoint. And... Uh, you know, 20 other Israeli soldiers just ran away, and uh, the uh, the um, um, you know Palestinian resistance uh, a person was able to escape. They haven't been able to catch them mm. until now. So we can see a new wave of resistance in the West Bank. It's an armed uprising, and it's connecting to what happened in Gaza. And it's you know everything is moving uh, in a different uh, pattern uh, than before. Laith Maroof, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. You have a great evening. You too. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned.
We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. The China Channel on Substack has a piece entitled China's Report Card for the Past Decade by Yang Lu. With the 20th Party Congress planned for October 16th, Beijing Channel has combed through official figures to bring you the China Report, the China Report Card newsletter that sums up China's achievements in numerous fields since the 18th Party Congress in 2012. Uh, In this newsletter, they focus on the following fields, infrastructure, strengthening the rule of law, made in China, the Chinese market, China's revenue, and reform and opening. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's a peace activist, writer, and teacher, K.J. No. As always, K.J., welcome back. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. So let me ask this. What is the level of confidence that you or someone reading this can put into this China's report card? How do people looking at this know that this is not just Communist Party propaganda? Well, I mean, it serves uh, the uh, it serves as PR for the party, but certainly it's all verifiable. I mean, when you say that they have uh, created 1.1 million kilometers of roads and railways. That's visible from satellite. When they say they have 2.53 billion passengers, uh, you know, riding uh, high-speed rail, they have ticket invoices for that. When they say that they've built 200, and uh, when they say they have 250 airports, of which 82 are newly built, of which 47 are built in poverty alleviation areas, all of that is visible from maps and satellite imaging. So there's some extraordinary development that's mm-hmm. happening in China. And I think it's pretty much you can trust, um, you know, these figures and, and documents. On an area such as comprehensive rule of law, strict governance, something that those things to me in many regards would be more subjective. Your thoughts? I think they are. But, you know, once again, uh, these things are on a public documents. They're not hidden. You can find them. So if you wanted to, you could look them all up. And the other thing which is uh, quite fascinating is China is doing a lot of court cases uh, through uh, computers. Uh, that is, you can you know register online and then get a decision through uh, you know through an online platform. And they mediate 51 disputes every minute. So you can tell that how effective and efficient this is. This is different from, you know, where we have to spend, you know, months, sometimes years and, and you know, thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars to get simple cases resolved. I think the other thing is that this aligns with what we see on a day-to-day basis, the information. For instance, well, you brought 800 million people out of poverty. You know, um, that when you see the kind of things, when you look at the numbers, uh, the um, uh, polling numbers of support for China by the U.S. polls, it kind of aligns with these numbers. The numbers seem – if you look at the numbers, you would think, well, things dramatically improved in China. Well – Apparently, the people in China seem to think that they've dramatically improved. And that's what's not talked about here in the U.S. As people in America say they should do this in China or they're doing that in China, what's not talked about is the Chinese people don't seem to have a a problem with it. They seem to be fairly pleased with their government. Your thoughts? They're very pleased. They're very pleased with their government. Longitudinal studies by 
Harvard University showed that they have uh, in the in the you know in the 90s uh, approval of the central government, and that is not only is it unwavering, but it's uh, increasing. The other you know you know casual statistic we could throw out was prior to COVID, 170 million Chinese tourists travel the world. And every single one of them went back to China, you know, so clearly there's something is working for them. If, if this were, you know, some kind of oppressive hellhole, they wouldn't all be uh, scrambling to go back. And we also know that there's a pretty large reverse brain drain happening right now. That is Chinese Americans who are naturalized in the United States are discarding their U.S. citizenship and going back to China. Once again, all of these are indices uh, of the confidence uh, and the approval uh, of the government and the system. U.S. self-defeating ban on F-35 alloy from China, an attempt to decouple. The Pentagon temporary ban on a rare alloy used in the F-35 fighter jet was a self-defeating attempt to decouple from China and had nothing to do with safety concerns. Your thoughts, K.J. No. Well, I mean, we've said this many, many times before. There are 350,000 components that go into a single F-35 jet fighter. Uh, A large percentage of those components come from China. So you're not going to be able to cut out that supply chain. Specifically, these were related to rare earth magnets. uh, And there was some, you know, to do whether this constitutes some kind of security threat. But, of course, magnets don't listen in on transmissions. It's impossible for them to do that. They're simple, solid-state devices. And so now they have, you know, authorized them. But it speaks, once again, to the kind of absurd paranoia regarding Chinese supply chains. But also it highlights the fact that, uh, for example, in the case of rare earth metals, there is no meaningful substitute for China. Global Times sized a speech slammed as another political farce, indulging in secessionist pipe dream. Uh, it seems to me that the um, secessionist movement in Taiwan is watching um, the, uh, d- the the debacle in Ukraine uh, as though it's some kind of a how-to movie. And, uh, you know, they, they sur- it seems absurd to me. But anyway, your thought on um, Tsai Ing-wen's uh, recent speech? Well, Tsai Ing-wen belongs to the DPP. Uh, party, which is the head of what is called the Pan-Green Coalition. And these are the secessionist parties. But they do not have a mandate. They do not have a majority. They don't even have the numbers to change the constitution, which uh, the ROC, Republic of China, Taiwan Constitution, says that Taiwan is a part of China, which everybody in the world agrees, including the United States, including the U.N., and the majority of the countries of the world. Uh, what Tsai Ing-wen is probably trying to do is she's trying to talk nice while up-armoring, a little bit like what the Ukraine did while pretend, pretending to engage with the Minsk Accords. And uh, this whole strategy is to create this, you know, what the U.S. refers to as a porcupine strategy, make it so that Taiwan Island cannot be absorbed into China by uh, arming it to the teeth with especially asymmetric weapons. I think that's what this is. Uh, I think that's what this is about. That's why there's some nice language at the same time that the message 
is that uh, from the DPP standpoint that Taiwan is uh, ready for self-defense uh, and that it is already uh, strongly pro-secessionist, that it's going down that line regardless of the fact that it has no legal or popular mandate for it. Asia Times reports China's next aircraft carrier likely to be nuclear. Official line is that China's fourth planned carrier will be conventional, but recent reports point to more powerful ambitions. Uh, China aims to build a nuclear-powered aircraft carrier to protect its growing strategic interests abroad, the latest flex of Beijing's growing naval power and clout. Your thoughts, KJ No. Well, you know, it's it's unsure. This is speculation at this point. China could go nuclear or it could not go nuclear. It already has the capacity and the technology because it builds nuclear-powered submarines. Uh, a nuclear aircraft carrier would, you know, be kind of a status piece, but it would also allow a longer uh, operation deployment time. And so if China has to engage, for example, in the South China Sea or uh, for uh, uh, you know, longer periods around the Taiwan Straits or Taiwan Island, then it gives it that capacity. I think what the Chinese are probably thinking of, and they're preparing for this, is the U.S., uh, it knows that it cannot win a war over Taiwan with uh, against China, and therefore it wants to expand the battlefield, the, the theater of war, and so China may be preparing for that possibility. There's an article, another Asia Times article, uh, the U.S. and uh, the Philippines are, as they say, back in military lops, lockstep vis-a-vis China. We do know that the, uh, the uh, Philippine president had uh, originally said that, you know, or at least implied that he was backing away from that conflict a little bit. Your thoughts on this? Is this maybe pushing it a little further than, they, than, than, than reality with this particular article? You know, I think it's uh, it's uh, there's some speculative uh, interpretation, but the simple fact is that the U.S. is currently doing uh, naval exercises, military exercises with the Philippines. These had been, you know, somewhat attenuated uh, under the previous administration, which had blown hot and cold about kicking the U.S. out of the Philippines. But it's clear that the Philippines is realigning with the United States, uh, and it's doing military exercises just as the U.S. was doing military exercises with Japan, just as it was doing it with South Korea, and just as they're having all these three countries come together and do military exercises together. So this is, you know, from a historical standpoint, it's a kind of reconstitution of a historical axis of fascism, that is South Korea-Taiwan Philippines. These were really the, the core holders of this kind of anti-communist military fascist alliance in Asia. Um, and, you know, the example that I think of is that the Philippines, uh, sorry, uh, Taiwan Island actually trained uh, the death squad leader, Roberto Dobison, who went on to commit uh, a genocide in El Salvador. So there is this kind of reconstitution of this axis, which are all uh, U.S. vassals. And at the same time, as I said, the U.S. wants to spread out the theater of war. This is the third offset dispersion. Uh, it wants to create a wider battle of theater 
which advantages the U.S. and its naval assets. China is a land power. The U.S. is a, a naval power. What do you see Marcos Jr.'s longer-term strategy or play here being? Because as we look at recent developments, a lot of countries, if they sit down and they're, and, they're, and they're calculating and having to make a decision about which side of the equation they're going to back, a lot of folks are back in the United States. I'm sorry. A lot of folks are back in China slash Russia. They aren't, they aren't putting their money on the United States. I think the Philippines is playing a misguided uh, game. It's trying to play both sides of the fence. It's trying to please the United States. It's already, you know, approved the stationing of U.S., uh, you know, the use, the U.S. use of Subic Bay mm-hmm. uh, as a logistics uh, facility. Uh, and so they're trying to, on the one hand, they know that the future lies with China. The Philippines is not economically strong. Mm-hmm. It's not politically strong. It needs to ally with China uh, at the same time that historically it has always served oh, as okay. U.S. client state. Uh, and the son is, uh, you know, Marcus Jr. is the son of the right. previous Ferdinand Marcus, who was a U.S. puppet. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's a sense in which the apple is not falling far from the tree. Okay. KJ, no, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Tulsi Gabbard has announced that she's quitting the Democratic Party, attacking, quote, elitist cabal of warmongers, end quote. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's a political activist, independent journalist, and podcaster, Nico House. As always, Nico, welcome back. Glad to be back, gentlemen. So the former Hawaii congresswoman and 2020 presidential hopeful says that the party is dominated by those espousing cowardly wokeness. Your thoughts, Nico House? Um, well, I mean, honestly, I, I feel like I could speak for a lot of people when I say it, it's, it's about damn time that she left the party. I mean, welcome to the club. Uh, <laughs> you know, I think a lot of people have been waiting for her to separate herself from the Democratic Party uh, just because the Democratic Party doesn't seem to represent the interests of the people. They definitely don't, don't seem to represent the type of policy efficacy that she has represented in the past with, with her you know, climate change legislation, with her anti-war legislation, and so on and so forth. Um, and I think that, who knows, this could be you know kind of like a foreshadow of things to come for 2024. But, I mean, just personally, I'm glad she left. I'm not sure exactly. You know, I mean, I know she says what the reason is, but I, I can't tell you personally exactly what the reason is. But uh, I can tell you that she's felt like she's wanted to leave the party for, for some time now. And I'm guessing now she just finally made it official, given that the elections are coming up, like the midterm elections are coming up. 
Well, you know, and I think actually it'll pick her up a lot of support for this reason, because Tulsi Gabbard is outside of the Democratic Party already. The party hates her. She's moved on. And I I think let me ask you this. Do you think just your opinion? I know you don't know the answer to these things, but this is speculation. Do you think that she becomes an independent, joins the Republican Party, Green Party? You know, because there are a lot of other people because of the fact that certain parties have ballot access that may argue, well, she may be if she's going to run for president, get on the Green Party for the ballot access, things of that nature. Your your thoughts? Well, and before you answer, let me let me piggyback on that question, because I think this next question is relevant. Who goes with her? What is her what is her draw? And I, and again, I know you don't know the answer, but you're you're Nico House, you know the answer. So so what how many how many people follow her? Well, so to answer Gar's question first, pragmatically speaking, I mean like I feel like I know Tulsi pretty well. And I actually think that she's gonna run for president under the Republican Party as somewhat of um as like a what's what's his name? Thomas Massey type of Republican, I guess if you would call it, like, you know, he's an environmentalist. They have a lot of the same policy ideas, too. And I think that she believes that amongst it, because there's going to be discombobulation, right? We know right now that Trump is running. We also know DeSantis is running. And we, all, we know that between both of those two candidates, the only one who actually can probably secure all of those votes from both sides, who, who like a candidate that is well-liked by both sides, is Tulsi. So strategically speaking, it would make sense for her if she is going to run it would make sense for her to run in the Republican Party where she'll have two Republican candidates who will be challenging the election integrity for her. She doesn't have to do it because both have a record of speaking on it. And so now there's going to be a magnifying glass that will be on the Republican primary that might allow her to slip in and win because election integrity will be such a big deal. Now, the people that go with her, I imagine that most of them, most people will stay independent because she, she, she just has such a wide draw. Most of the most people in the Democratic Party who don't like her are going to probably stay, obviously. But those who do either don't vote Democrat right now anyway, or at least most of them, uh, and a lot of them have already gone independent. I've, you know, I've personally been independent, and I'm not changing that anytime soon. But um, I think that it's just going to bring – I feel like it means a lot more personally. Like I think Republicans would benefit from it in the primary, but if, if we're talking about just a general big picture, a general election, she could sweep. I think that she could sweep all 50 states if she ran. Because like who's gonna go against her? So so let me let me follow up and, and, and couch the question this way. Does this matter? It does, it does. Or after the dust settles, does this become a yawner? Nah, it's it's, it's gonna matter. Okay. I mean and why? and why? Because it's just, I mean, looking at history, every time Tulsi makes a decision that may seem rather insignificant, like just for, let's say, for example, her deciding to uh, not vote to impeach Trump because she said it was a farcical. She said that's not what they should be talking about if we are going to talk about impeaching him um, and that this was, that was merely an attempt to distract uh, and deflect blame. And then we just saw this entire Ukraine situation come come back around, you know, 180 degrees and now we're it's, we're kind of still in the middle of it. The only one who has any room to talk about what we should and shouldn't be doing as far as politicians are concerned probably is Tulsi because she was the one who saw all this coming from the beginning. And so everything she does usually has a purpose because she's just that type of person. Um, will she actually be Republican, you know, in practice? Probably not, just like she wasn't a Democrat in practice. But she, she doesn't like just doing things for the sake of doing them. I think that her running in the Republican Party gives her an opportunity to implement all the change she wanted to make but actually have a chance to win.
There was a time when there used to be moderate Republicans like Bill Bradley and stuff like that, when the Republican Party actually had a moderate wing. And now that what was the moderate wing of the Republican Party back then is to the left of the Democratic Party today. Let me ask you this. You ready? Are you ready, Nico? (laughs) Yeah. Trump Gabbard 2024. Is that what we're looking at? Well, listen, whoever, <laughs> that out there. I'll tell you like this, if it, it, whoever's smarter between DeSantis and, and Trump, they'll throw her an opportunity for to be their running mate as soon as they announce. They better throw that one out there because we know how Tulsi is, right? Everybody thought, oh, she'll just kind of sit back and watch Bernie handle business and then she'll just become VP. No, that's not how Tulsi is. If you don't give her an opportunity to show that you're going to allow her to affect policy in a meaningful way, so just run and spoil your whole campaign. I'm just saying. So, I do. Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. With her, Bernie and Tulsi. No. No, this year. No, I, no, I don't see that happening. Okay. I mean, she. He threw her under the bus far too many times. I mean, he threw all of us gotcha. under the bus far too many times at this point. So. Gotcha. Black agenda rejects calls for more foreign in- intervention in Haiti and stands for respecting Haitian sovereignty and self determination. The Haitian people have been protesting for months against ongoing foreign occupation and U.S. support for a corrupt government that was not elected by a popular vote or mandate. Your thoughts, Nico House? Well, I just uh, feel like I should just remind everybody that the Haitian president was definitely assassinated by the U.S. FBI, at least, um, that they were found. The guy who was guiding the Colombians who did assassinate him uh, said that— he was DEA when he was arrested. So <laughs> just want to remind everybody about that. And then um, actually I was covering this, this this story at length whenever it first came out. And I was like, they're about to go occupy Haiti. And in the article, they were like, we're not going to go occupy them. We're just sending some forces overseas to make sure that vaccines are properly administered and that we ensure the transition of power is peaceful. Except for that's not really what they went over there to do. They went over there to occupy Haiti. It seems to be, you know, that, and it's not just Haiti, by the way. This is happening in African countries as well. So this is this is a pattern that we're seeing with the U.S. And this is also a pattern that we're seeing is a bunch of protests happening in Haiti. What I want to say it's almost for seven or eight weeks now, and you know not, none of the news is talking about it. But you know, God forbid, uh, they see a, a rogue social media post on Iran, and then they're talking about overthrowing the government, right? So <laughs> this is this is this is like a pattern, but. Um, you know, uh, definitely going to show some solidarity with Haiti. And it, it sucks that this is the pattern that they have to keep dealing with because of just all the natural resources they have. Uh, it seems like they're just being, they're constantly and, and perpetually pu- being punished for uh, actually being the first Caribbean country to successfully, you know, succeed from this, a, a major superpower. It seems like, like they just don't want anybody to like lead for, uh, fall by their example. Uh, I understand you've recently been to Brazil. You were getting back from Brazil. Um, are you covered? Yeah, I'm what? Do- my life, man. I almost yeah. didn't come back, y'all. Uh-huh. I almost I've, didn't come back. I've heard that once or twice, Nico. Trust me. I've heard that from the brothers on occasion, okay? But <laughs> let's keep this clean. Uh, we'll talk about the election this time. Uh, what are your thoughts? What's going on? So, uh, man, you know how impressed I was at how knowledgeable the average Brazilian was on um, – or what was going on between Bolsonaro and Lula and how big of a deal it was and how they knew. Uh, they did know that the U.S. had something to do with Lula, but I was actually very fortunate to interact with a lot of people, and I was like, yeah, y'all, y'all do know like Bolsonaro is one of ours. 
And they were like, what? What are you talking about? I'm like, yeah, no, Bolsonaro definitely are. Like, we helped put a little bit in jail just to create enough space for Bolsonaro to take over. They're like, they didn't know this. And I'm like, well, you, you do know we're the reason that your economy is unstable. They're like, no, we had no idea. We thought we just were ran by bad people. I'm like, no, every time you have a good person, we work to get them screwed over. Y'all, y'all haven't noticed this pattern, you know? But, you know, it's they're not taught about how – they're not taught about, like, a lot of the U.S. – Trade deals. They are, they're not, you know, they, they're aware that Lula was one of the, that was the one who tried to come up with this, uh, with this idea to use sugarcane ethanol, um, because that was the number one, that's the only really natural resource that they're allowed to export. They export 93% of the world's uh, sugarcane. Um, but like, that was going to diversify the economy in a way that, because all their cars, cars run on ethanol. So they don't even need crude oil as it is. And then whenever Lula came up with this idea, um, that was around the time that we put him in jail. So they were going to, because he was going to divert, you know, similar to what we did to Hugo Chavez. So they, the Brazilian people actually have no idea, for the most part, just how influential the U.S. is in their economy because they've kind of been lulled to sleep. But they do know this. They do know that the world does not respect them, uh, and they don't really have a lot of respect for Bolsonaro. A lot of people have no idea what he's doing in power. Right, because if I'm not mistaken, I don't even think he actually won legitimately. Um, it just Lula went to jail, and he got it kind of just placed right. there right. in an emergency type situation. So, the, but they women, but, women, women. Let me also let me. So they don't even know what? the involvement that Steve Bannon had in that election. Have no, they have zero idea? Wow. They have zero idea. They didn't even know. A lot of them, they 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 they're still voting for Lula. In spite of the fact that they originally thought that there was some corruption charge, they were like, well, he can't be more corrupt than Bolsonaro. I was like, well, no, he wasn't actually corrupt at all. He didn't do anything wrong. They're like, what? Then why did he go to jail? I said, oh, you must not know how the U.S. justice system works. You can sit in jail for, for weeks and months and years without being charged with anything. You didn't know that. Yeah, it's just so they can get whatever they need from you while you're in jail. And that's what happened with Lula. And so a lot of them, you know, they kind of like were given like, wow, I had no idea how. I'm like, Yo, this is a, it's a requirement to vote out there if you don't vote. Um, you know, you have to actually have a reason, but a lot of them had just mm. I'm talking to Uber drivers and I was in Sao Paulo too. So I was in the city and you'd be surprised. I mean, I was changing minds. People who were really going to vote for Bolsonaro because they thought that they thought that Lula was a corrupt one because of the propaganda. And I was explaining to them, no, that's not what it is. If anything, if you're an Uber driver, you see how much you pay. You mean, you know, it's like four or $5 a gallon, uh, you know, well, not dollars, but Hey, ice, which is their currency, a gallon, but that's a lot of money for them. Mm-hmm. For people who, you know, that's the largest okay. Uber economy in the world. Okay. So if, go ahead. Well, no, we, we got to get out, but I'll just say this. If I sat on a beach in Brazil, I'd probably miss a whole lot of things as well because I'd, be, I'd be focused on other things. Nico House. <laughs> yeah, caipadinhas. Caipadinhas, you know, the drinks and the food. That's what I'm focused on. There we on. go. Nico House, as always, man, thank you so much. <laughs> got to get out. Hey, folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Scarlett Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Free Assange. Thousands demand release of WikiLeaks founder. 
quote, Julian is a journalist, end quote, said Labor Party MP Jeremy Corbyn. Journalism is not a crime. If he is extradited to the U.S., any other investigative journalist is at risk. Supporters of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange held a massive transatlantic protest on Saturday to demand freedom for the incarcerated journalist. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's the national organizer for Action for Assange, Steve Poikinen. As always, Steve, welcome back. Thank you very much, Wilmer. Great to be here. If they silence Assange, they can silence anyone. In London, thousands of people formed a giant human human chain around Britain's parliament and called for Assange's immediate release from the nearby maximum security Belmarsh prison, where he's been uh, where he suffered for years under conditions that experts have condemned as torture. Your thoughts, Steve Poikinen. I'm very, very glad that so many people were able to turn out in so many different spots uh, around the world. Um, huge thanks to Amy Bootman and Deepa Driver. A number of people helped put the event together in London. Stella Assange, of course. Um, here in the U.S., you know, thank you very much to Garland. Showing up and speaking, huge shout out to Misty Winston uh, and um, Paula Izelia. I think that's how you say her last name. He did a tremendous job organizing it. Um, it's about time. It, it really is that people have turned out in numbers to stand up before a tortured, illegally imprisoned journalist and publisher. And what Jeremy Corbyn said, absolutely true. Uh, what Chris Hedges was saying in D.C., Absolutely true. You, the idea that any government could pluck any journalist from any country out of their home or out of protective custody and into one of their jails should be unconscionable. And the fact that we're even surrounding Parliament in 2022 to have this conversation is is beyond reason. It really is. So I just I'm I'm overjoyed that so many people turned out. Well, yeah, you know, I was going to say, you know, you as as have you, I've been to, you know, many Julian Assange um, events and oftentimes, you know, you get a few stragglers, you know, there's some people here and there, but you're, you know, disappointed you're doing a Julian Assange event and there's a couple of dozen people there. So it, I, I was at the one in the D, at D.C., I was one of the speakers, and I was pleasantly surprised at the number of people that was there. I was also pres- pleasantly surprised online, you know, Consortium News covered it live, uh, how many people online followed it. How many people online commented it? It's a good sign that maybe things are moving in the right direction. There were there were over 80,000 separate tweets about Julian Assange on Saturday that Twitter was showing people just from the U.S. And that's that's something that we haven't seen really since he was trafficked out of the embassy back in 2019. So where do you see at the end of the day, uh, this is this is increased visibility, this is uh, increased uh, uh, access. Do you see it at this stage of the game having a substantive effect, particularly on the side in London? Because I don't really know that the demand side for his extradition is going to change here. I see the ball being in the court that somebody in London's got to put pressure to say we're not sending him. Well, and I agree with that, and I hope that um, it. Well, first of all, let me say that I know that the people who organize the event are going to continue to put pressure on the speakers 
and on the people who, who showed up to comment, some of whom for the first time that had been asked over and over and over to lend their voices. Uh, so that pressure campaign is going to keep up. We're going to keep trying to get people who are in positions of influence or relative power um, to add their voices to this. I, I do think that we're going to see more of a concentrated effort in London than we have for a while, mostly because London is in such a, a state of political chaos. I don't even think Preeti Patel is working in the government anymore, and she's the one who signed the extradition order. Hardly anyone involved in the actual criminal process or proceedings is still in the U.K. government. So you have a perfect opportunity for people to to stand up and say, we effectively could have a clean slate here. Are you sure you want to make a mistake this detrimental to the entire planet? So I, I, I would like to see that happen. The Canary reports on Saturday, October 8th, thousands of people converged on the area around the U.K. Parliament. They came out to form a human chain to show solidarity with Julian Assange. However, there was a bitter hypocrisy at the heart of the protest. While the National Union of Journalists officially supported the action, the alleged left-wing guardian and our public service broadcaster, the BBC, failed to report it. Here, the only people I know that really reported it was, uh, unfortunately, Fox News. Your thoughts? Out of the mainstream, yeah, absolutely. I I didn't see it anywhere in U.S. media other than the No Agenda podcast who played some of Chris Hedges' speech. Um, And that was it. That was it. And it's not a surprise that the BBC didn't show. It's a little weird that The Guardian didn't show since their editorial board did come out with a statement earlier this year uh, opposing the extradition. It was at least pretty forceful in in what this would do uh, in terms of international journalism. I I am not surprised that the majority of English near UK media didn't cover it, but um, you would think purely out of curiosity. I don't know, maybe the BBC was busy uh, putting together a documentary on why the white helmets aren't human traffickers, or maybe they were running cover for another, uh, uh, you know, another piece of infrastructure getting blown up uh, in, in Crimea. Uh, the BBC has been busy lately, but, uh, but it is a shame that they weren't even willing to go six blocks up the road to cover this. Is there anybody that's sitting in the Washington press corps in that in that White House press room that could that you could that could muster the guts to ask uh, Karine Jean-Pierre the question about why is the United States still trying to extradite Julian Assange? If it was going to be anybody, it'd be Ducey, right? You'd think it would. Like that's your sparring partner. But I, I don't know how much of that is stage managed and how much of it is genuine. I can't think of the last time that we had a question in the White House press room about Julian Assange. And that in and of itself is a tragedy. I can talk. It's a travesty. You should have a reporter every single day screaming, what about Julian Assange? All of this lip service that not just the Biden White House, but Andy Blinken and Ned Price and the rest of that, you know, the, the rest of the, the different departments have paid to free speech, to preserving the First Amendment, to preserving the free press, all of that. And you don't get a single question. So, no, I, I, yeah, if anybody, I would say it would be Ducey. And if anybody's got a line to that guy, I'd put some pressure on. 
I also think that here we, we're getting close to the midterms, that what we're probably looking at is after the midterms, they're, they're going to try to, because the, the way things are going, they could bring them at any minute. But I think they understand that if they come here, they're going to have some forces, um, re, you know, a lot of forces that they would want to support them, um, very angry and pushing back. And I think that the, the dangerous time for him is after the midterms. And let's not forget uh, uh, currently, Julian Assange um, has been, I think, diagnosed with COVID. Steve. Yeah, that's that. That was uh, that was the neat cherry on top of the event is that everyone was that Stella had come out and said, "Oh well, um, you know, really did lift Julian Spears." And forty-eight hours later, a day later, Belmar's prison releases a statement saying that Julian Assange has tested positive for COVID. And this is a guy who's already on lockdown 23 and a half hours a day in uh, a prison where they haven't had a reported case of COVID in a while. So all of the sudden, a guy who's already on lockdown goes into even more severe restrictive lockdown a day after an international action, raising awareness about the fact that he's been in Belmarsh for three years, three and a half years that he's being tortured, that he's being held without charges. I, 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 I wish him, I wish him a swift recovery. Uh, if it, in fact a recovery is needed, <laughs> I'll say that. So in a last ditch effort to avoid extradition, his legal team has filed an appeal in the UK's high court. And you mentioned that pretty Patel is not, is no longer UK home secretary. So, through that process, what do you what what are your projections? I mean, the as far as as far as the the narrative managers and the people who would like to see Julian put away and, and stay off of the table are concerned. I think that they would love for nothing else than for everyone to forget that this is happening, and there will just be some mid level functionary stamping a piece of paper and putting through the extradition. But that's where. People like Deepa Driver and her outstanding nonstop work on this come into play um, because there are some political avenues and there are some with now with Jeremy Corbyn finally finding his voice and, and talking about this a little bit more effectively. I think you might be able to see uh, an avenue of political pressure that we haven't before, again, just because there is that void there. You, uh, you know, work, you've been with Action for Assange. You've done a lot of work. What is the future of the Assange movement? What do you think is coming up next? What kind of things could, could, might happen if they try to extradite him? Your thoughts? You're going to see. And we got We got about see, two minutes. Uh, Good. OK, you're, you are going to see all possible stops pulled out for this. Um, there has been somewhat of a, a resurgence in interest in some of the more like celebrity corners. Uh, of the U.S. in terms of people who can move the needle a little bit, a little bit more influential. I I definitely expect to see those campaigns heating up. And I would also expect to see more and more frequent events, uh, especially as we get out of winter and moving into next spring. And you don't know that's less than two minutes. But no, 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 no. Uh, Well, and and just to follow up there. So you you don't see extradition before spring. I don't, and only because they've got to get through the midterms. And as soon as there are, as soon as they inaugurate a new Congress, assuming it's going to be GOP heavy, we're going to be inundated with uh, impeachment talk. And there's there's just going to be massive gridlock from day one. So I think we'll have an opportunity to do some maneuver. 
Steve Poikinen, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you very much, gentlemen. You have a great day. Folks, you've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened, and we look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out. 